I was just informed that this is the last adult Sabbath school class uh, until January, um, so I failed to make that announcement before. Um, but uh, we are uh, continuing the book of Genesis, uh, the fifth chapter of Genesis. That's the fifth chapter of Genesis, and um, in a sense, this does, God willing, provided we get through the text, that we will this. This morning, it will leave us in a good place as we resume in January um, to look at uh, not only the flood, but the world afterward. As we did the last time we were together, I I won't read the text in its entirety first. What we'll do is we'll read um, just portions that we'll be taking up. Um, This is really primarily for the sake of time. But if you would, turn with me in your Bibles to the 5th of Genesis, and we'll begin our reading there at verse 1. And we'll begin by reading just the first two verses. Hear once again the word of our God. This is the book of the generations of Adam. In the day that God created man, in the likeness of God made he him. Male and female created he them, and blessed them, and called their name Adam, in the day when they were created. Before we even come to this text, I think it might be useful for us just to step back and remind ourselves where we're at in the text. We are leaving really the first major section of the book. The first major section, you remember, begins with, in Hebrew, that word toledot, which is translated often the generations of. In Genesis chapter 2, you have, of course, the idea that the writer is giving us the generations of the beginning, or what he calls the generations of the heavens and the earth. And that section goes all the way from really the, I believe it's the fourth verse of chapter two until the very last verse of the fourth chapter of Genesis. When we come to Genesis 5-1, again we run up against just another instance of that word, toledot. This is the book of the generations of Adam. This is a chapter marker, and we've been treating these as chapter markers all the way through. And so we need to see ourselves as entering into the next major section of this book. And this section goes from 5.1 all the way over, really, to 9.29. So this is a large section that encompasses, of course, as you just think in your mind, all the various events that are in view here. Uh, We have really almost a millennia and a half of history in this second section. But even within the second section, you'll notice that actually it can even be subdivided. So... This is the book of the generations of Adam, but if you come down chapter 6, starting there at verse 9, you have the words, these are the generations of Noah. Now, you might say to me, well, well Joey, hang on a second. We're saying that Toledo is a chapter marker. Doesn't 6-9 tell us that we're entering a new chapter? It would, it would, if you didn't find in the very first verse of chapter 10 a repetition. These are the generations of the sons of Noah. The idea is is that this is a subdivision within this second major division in the text. And that's how we'll approach it this morning. We're really only going to be focusing on this first part of this second section, verses uh, 1, uh, verse 1, chapter 5, all the way down to verse 8, chapter 6. And in this section, what you'll notice is the first two verses are certainly introductory. They're setting us up to understand all this to come. And then from 5-3, all the way down to the very end of the chapter, really, you have, of course, the genealogical table. And in that genealogical table, you have 
really a very straightforward list of names until you get really to chapter 5, verse 21. And then the narrator moves away from simply giving us basic names, ages, and who begat whom, to actually giving us greater detail about those who are in view. And that's crucial, because that sets us up then for that next subsection that begins in chapter 1, verse 6. That takes us into what we refer to as the antediluvian world. That's the world before the flood. And that world is really given to us in the first eight verses of chapter 6. Now as we come to the first two verses that I read to you, this introductory part of this, of this section, you have here, of course, the words, Tulegluk, this is the book of the generations of Adam. And what's striking is, as I just read to you from chapter 10, verse 1, the patriarchs, when they think about world history, they think about this time, this antediluvian world, this world before the flood, between the fall and the flood, as really being bookended by two men. Adam on the one hand, and Noah on the other. Consistently, that's the case. It is Adam and Noah. Adam represents the old world. Noah represents the present world. That's the idea in the text. And so as we continue, you'll notice here, in verse 6, 9, chapter 10, verse 1, the emphasis is always placed on one of these two men. And so what we come to in this section is the old world. This is the world that we do not know. This is the world that we do not live in. Now as we go to the second verse, you'll notice that the text reads, He called, the Lord called their name Adam. Now that's striking. In the Hebrew, the word there is Adam. And Adam, of course, you remember, means strong from the ground. Well, the emphasis seems to be in this moment is just this. That Adam, who was created in the likeness of God, well, man, though drawn from the dust, is made a model die, made in the image of God. It's a paradox of sorts. The sense is, is that Adam comes from nothing, and yet he is the pinnacle of creation. It's a striking thing, isn't it? The paradox is supposed to hit us. And what's striking is, too, he's called Adam not because of the fall. He is named this prior to the fall. He has this mark of his humble beginnings placed upon him at his very inception. And here the writer reminds us of this fact. Yes, created in the image of God, but nevertheless, man is from the dust. He's of the earth. But that brings us then to the genealogical table. And I want to read the first, well, really the first section here that really is chapter 5, 3, all the way down to verse 20. It reads, and Adam lived 130 years and begat a son in his own likeness after his image and called his name Seth. And the days of Adam after he had begotten Seth were 800 years and he begat sons and daughters. And all the days that Adam lived were 930 years and he died. And Seth lived 105 years and begat Enos. And Seth lived after he begot Enos 807 years and begat sons and daughters. And all the days of Seth were 912 years, and he died. And Enos lived 90 years and begat Canaan. And Enos lived after he begat Canaan 815 years and begat sons and daughters. And all the days of Enos were 905 years, and he died. And Canaan lived 70 years and begat Mahalia. And Canaan lived after he begat Mahalia 840 years and begat sons and daughters. 
And all the days of Canaan were 910 years. And he died. And Mahaliel lived 60 and 5 years and begat Jared. And Mahaliel lived, after he begat Jared, 830 years and begat sons and daughters. And all the days of Mahaliel were 890 and 5 years. And he died. And Jared lived 162 years and he begat Enoch. And Jared lived, after he begat Enoch, 800 years and begat sons and daughters. And all the days of Jared were 960 and 2 years, and he died. Now, as we look at this, of course, this is a very straightforward genealogical chart. We are simply given names, given ages, given posterity, and then told precisely when they died, or what age they, they died. But as we look at this text, what I want you to notice is just a few very basic things. This is not pure biology. I want to reiterate that just for a moment. This is not just a genealogical table to show you who begat whom. You remember, Adam begat, Adam and Eve begat Cain. But Cain's line is intentionally left out of this fifth chapter. Yes, of course, in the fourth chapter we are given some of that, some of that chart. But intentionally, the writer focuses only on those who flow from Seth. And why is that? Well, friends, we've already recognized from verse 26 of chapter 4, you have here the inception and the continuation of the church. You have here in the fifth chapter then, not just family, not just genealogy, but you have ecclesiastical history. The history of the church is primarily in view. And we know that, of course, because it is Cain's line that is excluded entirely. These are those who remained, not, not with Cain and not with the other rebels of his race, but who remained close to Eden, close to the Lord. And we'll actually see that in the very way in which these names are given. These names, we have to understand, are, first of all, not just names. Uh, these are certainly prophetic, and they are also certainly theologically related. Each of these names has real and deep meaning to it. So take Seth just for a moment. As you look at the first eight verses, it's really Seth's focus uh, that the narrative brings us to. We're told here that, he, that Adam begat the son in his own likeness after his image. And what do we make of that? When we think of Seth, are we supposed to think that it was in Adam's image as opposed to the image of God? In one sense, the answer to that question is yes. Emphatically, Adam is made in the image of God in the first two verses. But Seth is born in the likeness of Adam. Now what do we make of that? Well, the reality is the image of God is not eradicated from Seth. It's not entirely destroyed in the fall. But it certainly is, to use Calvin's word, very much distorted. And Seth is brought in to the world with that distorted image. Yes, still created image of God, Genesis 9, wise were prohibited because man was created in the image of God. Men are the similitude of God, James 3.9. The image of God remains, but it is now in man in a way very different than it was originally in his creation. And the narrator calls our attention to that. Yes, Seth is created imago Dei, image of God, but in a very different way than Adam was his father. But then we find here his name is called Seth. And the reality is, 
even the name Seth indicates for us the kind of thing the narrator is doing in this fifth chapter. Seth literally means replacement. It means replacement. Now, who is he replacing? Of course, in the end of the fourth chapter, it certainly does indicate that Abel is the one replaced. But the sense is, the replacement has taken place in such a way that really, this is the line that Adam and Eve identify with. This is the line that they claim. Now, we find here, verses 9 to 11, that Seth begets Enos. Now, the striking thing about this word is Enos means friendly or intimate. But if you just look at verse 26 of chapter 4, we get some sense here why he would be named this way. And to Seth, to him also, there was born a son, and he called his name Enos. Now note this. Then began men to call upon the name of the Lord. And again, that phrase that we talked about weeks ago, being that idea of calling upon the Lord is not understood, of course, in the most literal sense, as though men were not already calling upon the Lord in prayer. We already know they were worshiping God from the very beginning of chapter 4. The sense here is, is that they are calling upon the Lord in an extraordinary way. In other words, they are a revived people. And so what does Enos show us? After the fall, there is still intimacy with God. It's a staggering thing, isn't it? This moment of revival, Seth sees here, Enos is quite appropriate. Men may yet be friends with the Most High. Enos is Canaan. Strikingly, Canaan is really just the form of the name Cain. And the name here means, that is, gain. Uh, Genesis 4.1, Canaan is there used by Eve to describe how she gained a son from the Lord. And the sense is, is that Cain really has been replaced. This is really, really for the church of God, a moment in which they recognize that genuinely the Lord has made them anew, made them a new family. Mahalia, verses 15 to 17, means literally, God is praiseworthy. God is praiseworthy. I want you to just think about that for a moment. As I've said to you from the very beginning, this is ecclesiastical history that we're looking at, and Mahalia very much explicitly indicates that. This is a family who is seeking to worship the Most High. And so, Mahalia represents for us this really, this almost a gauntlet thrown to the family of Cain, that God is worthy of all praise. Let you boast in all the glory and all the might of man, but we will worship the Lord. That's what this family is crying. Yaret, verses 18 to 20, it means literally to descend, but the sense is that of humility. He's a humble servant. Again, as we leave the fourth chapter, how strikingly different is that than, of course, the line of Cain. This line in the fifth chapter of Genesis describes themselves as worshippers of the Most High who are humble. And you remember, at the end of the fourth chapter, Cain's line is described as being violent, proud, and boasters of themselves. But that brings us, really, to the end of the genealogical table, which is chapter 5, 21 to 32. And as I said to you, in this section of text, we're given more detail than just names. Verse, I'll read these verses to you. Starting here at verse 21, we read, And Enoch lived sixty and five years and begat Methuselah. 
And Enoch walked with God after he begat Methuselah 300 years and begat sons and daughters. And all the days of Enoch were 365 years. And Enoch walked with God, and he was not, for God took him. And Methuselah lived 187 years and begat Lamech. And Methuselah lived after he begat Lamech 782 years and begat sons and daughters. And all the days of Methuselah were 969 years, and he died. And Lamech lived an hundred eighty and two years and begat a son, and he called his name Noah, saying, This same shall comfort us concerning our work and toil of our hands, because of the ground which the Lord hath cursed. And Lamech lived after he begat Noah five hundred ninety and five years, and begat sons and daughters. And all the days of Lamech were seven hundred seventy and seven years, and he died. And Noah was five hundred years old. And Noah begat Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Now, just very briefly, as we're looking at Enoch, we'll come back to him in just a moment's time, but Enoch, his very name means to be consecrated, to be dedicated to God. And as we look at this text, it's the very self-same word that's used to describe the dedication of the temple. In Second Chronicles 7, the king and all the people dedicated, that is, Enoch, the house of God. Enoch here is described as one consecrated, dedicated to the Lord. And then we're told that this one whose very name is consecration, he walked with God and he was not, for God took him. The striking is he was singularly close to the Lord. That's really everything that the text is indicating. And we will, of course, find in the epistle of the Hebrews a greater explanation of what's taking place here. But but the sense very much is he walked close with the Lord. But as we'll see, the striking thing about this is that Enoch was dedicated. He was consecrated to God in a time of declension, in a time of rebellion. He walked with the Lord when so few around him were. When the church, even itself, was at that time making peace with the world. And so what we find here is a man walking singularly close with the Lord, and then he's taken, taken in a moment of declension. He begets Methuselah, and the name Methuselah is a striking name because it means literally man of the sword, or of any weapon, really. And the sense is there, this is a name that represents judgment. This is a name that tells the world, really for the first time in all of chapter 5, that things are not well. That there is really indignation from heaven falling upon the earth. This is really looking forward, of course, to the events of Genesis 6. And so this name that Enoch gives to Methuselah, this name of judgment and and of, of certain wrath, really points us forward to what's to come. And even Lamech itself does the same. Lamech, Methuselah's son, means warrior or conqueror. That's what Lamech literally means. The sense of war, the sense of conquering, now becomes very much high, as it were, on the thoughts of God's people. And I'll say this to you now. There's a striking thing that goes on and as we reach the end of this genealogical table. And that's the parallel with this table and that of Cain's lineage. You'll actually find now the names begin to look almost identical. In fact, in the original, they are identical in some cases. 
And why is that? Well, the church of God is looking, of course, at men as being under the wrath of God, being rightfully under the sword of the Lord. And yet man, as we saw in the fourth chapter, boasts in his own strength and thinks that he may really be invincible. We find here that Lamech names his son Noah. And Noah means literally rest. And Lamech tells us why he named his son this. He says, This saying shall comfort us concerning our work and toil of our hands, because of the ground which the Lord hath cursed. First of all, this is an explanation of Noah's name. Uh, this reinforces the idea that these names were not given really at random. There was real meaning, theological meaning, that was really laid in each, each case. What's striking in the explanation is you have two things. First of all, you have the first mention of the curse in chapter 5. You remember when we looked at verses 1 and 2, there's no mention of the fall and no mention of the curse. But now Lamech mentions the curse, the curse of the ground. And moreover, he speaks of the Lord not as Elohim, not merely as creator God, but he speaks of him as Jehovah, that is the God of covenant. That's crucial. And this reminds us, of course, again, that we are dealing with that covenantal people. As we pull all of these names and these times together, there are just a few facts that I think are important for us to keep before us. Lamech, Noah's father, knew Adam for 56 years, according to this table. Lamech was 56 years old when Adam dies. Also, Lamech knew Seth for 130 years. Take Noah. Noah knew Enos, that's Adam's grandson, for 90 years. And of course, Noah knew Methuselah for 600. So as we're looking at the genealogical table, it's important for us to keep in mind. Why is it that we have a, why is it that we have a people here that are so concerned to separate themselves from those who would boast in men and would describe themselves as worshippers of Jehovah? Well, because it is really a functioning family. Lamech would have known Adam, would have heard Adam perhaps even speaking of those events beforehand. And all of these things would have just reiterated that they were people indebted to the grace of God. Now, as we come to this last section of the text, verses 1 to 8, we'll hasten through these verses. And so allow me to read them to you here. I'll make just a few passing comments as we close. That's Genesis 6, starting with the first verse. And it came to pass, when men began to multiply on the face of the earth, and daughters were born unto them, that the sons of God saw the daughters of men, that they were fair. And they took them wives of all which they chose. And the Lord said, My spirit shall not always strive with man, for that he also is flesh. Yet his days shall be in hundred and twenty years. There were giants in the earth in those days, and also after that, when the sons of God came in unto the daughters of men, and they bare children to them, the same became mighty men, which were of old, men of renown. And God saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and that every imagination of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And it repented the Lord that he had made man on the earth, and it grieved him in his heart. And the Lord said, I will destroy man whom I have created from the face of the earth, both man and beast and the creeping thing, and the fowls of the air, for it repenteth me that I have made man. And Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. Just two brief notes. 
as we look at this text. In the first two verses, we have this discussion about the sons of God and daughters of men. And what are we to make of those? Well, as you look at this text, first of all, it is important to begin by seeing that the sons of men, sorry, the sons of God are distinguished from the daughters of men. The narrative is very clear. There's a real distinction that we have to recognize. But even within the text itself, there are certain clues that help us understand what the narrator is doing. As we look at the fifth chapter, there is no mention of the line of Cain. And so what happened to them? What happened to the Cainites of the fourth chapter? Where are they? How are they developing? It's a crucial question. The second is, as we look at even the genealogical tables, especially the names Methuselah and Lamech, what do we find? We find hints of judgment coming. We find hints that things are not well. And in fact, we're really looking at things not well, not just in terms of the world generally, but the senses, and we find this reiterated in the sixth chapter, that things are not even well in the church. This is a time of declension that is inviting tokens of divine displeasure. And then secondly, oh, thirdly rather, I want you to notice the focus. The focus of the narrator is always on, of course, the curse, sin, and grace. And if we hold all of these things together, we recognize, first of all, that the narrator has given us no mention of any angelic host. None whatsoever. The narrator is focused always on this. This family line and its relationship to God. And so what does that lead us to conclude? Well, as we look at Deuteronomy 32, we're told, of course, that God's covenant people are called his children. And also, the distinction between sons of God and daughters of men don't create any problem there either. Just to give you an example, uh, Genesis, uh, sorry, Jeremiah 32. Uh, the Lord set signs and wonders in the land of Egypt, even unto this day, and in Israel, and among men. Now, of course, the narrator there, the prophet, is not saying that Israel and mankind are ontologically, that is, in their very being, separate from one another. The idea is, is that there is a real distinction between God's covenant people and the rest of the world. And so what do we have in Genesis 6? Well, it's, it's nothing fantastic. It really is still ecclesiastical history. The idea is in these first two verses that now this church of Genesis 5 that has been preserved by God, has dedicated themselves to his worship and to his praise, has now become mixed with that line that was east of Eden, that apostate line from Cain. The sons of God the daughters of men, the declension of the church in the old world. And so when we come to verses 3 and 4, the Lord says, His spirit shall not always strive. Striking is, again, that's also an interpretive marker for us. He's saying here that his spirit will not strive. Luther uh, interprets this to mean that his prophets would not always continue with this particular generation. And he says that for a few reasons. Noah is called a preacher of righteousness. Enoch, of course, we find is also a prophet. And the Lord is saying here, as he will to Israel in later ages, his spirit will not strive in the sense that he will not send his prophets anymore to this untoward, stiff-necked people. And so what does that lead us to? Well, that leads us to what you have in the last several verses of this section. God saw the wickedness of man was great in the earth, that every imagination of the thoughts of his heart were sinful. 
The idea is, is that even though this is true of men generally after the fall, there's a sense in this period of time that the restraining grace of God was even more greatly limited, and man broke forth in even greater sin than before. He repented God that he made man on earth. It's an anthropopathism saying simply this, that, that God is saying, really, that man has become so hideous that he will not even regard them as his original creation. I mean, they are so hideous, so malformed, that they hardly even resemble the man that was made in the garden, or before he was put in the garden. And yet, at the very eighth verse, you have this blessed, blessed statement. In this age of the clenching, this mark of wrath, Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. This shows us just a few things. In the antediluvian world, the world before the flood, it was marked by grace, God had preserved his church, and also marked by declension. We also find, of course, that there's a hard line, originally, between the people of God and the world. The Canaanite and Sethite lines are distinguished until the clenching comes in the sixth chapter, and intermarriage and mixture takes place. But as you look at Enoch's translation, what you have here is a picture of judgment in many ways. Such a man who is dedicated, consecrated to God is taken. It's a striking thing, isn't it? Would it not have been great blessing to the church for such a man to have continued? Would it not have been such a great thing for the world had such a man continued to live? And yet the Lord took him. It was certainly a mark of judgment to that world, to that age, that such a man did not continue. But, of course, for Enoch, it was incredible blessing. The Lord would preserve his own, who stayed faithful to him in a declining time. That really is the application as we close. There's so much more that I could say, but the question that this text raises to us, of course, is are we drawing close to Christ in an age of declension? Are we like Enoch? We'll close with a quote from James Reddick here to that point. The more that Christ is rejected and despised by others, the more he is to be beloved by his own. We find even in these earlier chapters, these early, early years in the church's existence, that very thing. Even in a time of declension, God's people will cling close to Christ despite the malice of the world. May we be such people ourselves today. Well, let's, let's close with prayer. Gracious and eternal God, we come mindful that your word is a deep thing. We may find the end of all things around us. Even the deepest things that are created, they have their limit. And they can, they can be reached. But we know that your word is deep and beyond us. But Father, we do thank you that you are a God who even through these means, and even this morning, holds out to us wondrous things from it. And Father, all that we can pray for now is that that which we have seen that upon which we meditate would be really fruitful, would lead to our edification, and most of all, would lead to your glorified name here among us. Bless us, gracious God. We do thank you for the testimony of your church in the years before. 
And it is our great cry, our humble prayer, that you would keep us faithful, keep our garments clean in a declining age. So we ask in Jesus' blessing. Amen. Amen.